So we'll, we'll talk about the church of Christ as a whole, uh, what we believe about the church and about life in Christ. But since we have the opportunity to celebrate uh, a few baptisms, particularly this morning, we thought, what better time to um, dive into, no pun intended, what we believe about two significant sacraments and moments in the life of this body, why they matter to us, and how also we can delight in them. So here's what we'll do. Um, I'll share, I'll share a little bit on baptism, and then we will put that directly into practice by having a baptism. And then we'll share a little bit about the Lord's Supper and put that directly into practice by sharing the supper together. Um, so with that back and forth that we'll be doing this morning from sermon to sacrament, we need something to hang on to throughout the whole morning. Um, and in order to do that, I think it would help us to approach baptism and the Lord's Supper from the same angle, kind of, okay, they're not, okay, they are two different and distinct things, but let's approach them from the same, same angle. Here's the angle. Both baptism and the Lord's Supper serve to ongoingly enhance your understanding of, your love for, and your real-time fellowship with Jesus Christ. In his book, Deeper, Real Change for Real Sinners, Dane Ortland uses the illustration of an onion to describe various truths about you. Now, he doesn't say so in the book. I'm convinced he stole the illustration from Shrek. But you are, if picture yourself as an onion. Uh, he's getting, he, what he's getting at is, what's smack dab in the middle and most true about you? And he's speaking here of Christians. On the very outer layer is something like, say, your hair color or the car that you drive. If you peel a layer off and you get to the next layer, there's your blood type, maybe your family history. Then another layer deeper is your current relationships, who you're closest with, with that following layer being the truths that you hold to and what you believe. The next layer in would be things about, about you that no one else knows, secrets and secret sins and deep desires. But as you go along, as you dig down further and further, you're left with that, I mean, you, you've seen this, that really slippery middle piece of an onion with no layers that can be peeled off of it. Guess what lies there? Just throw, give me one example. What lies there as a Christian? What's at the very core of you? Christ, yeah. In, in a nutshell, yes, Christ. Um, the thing that is most true about you sitting in this room as a Christian, which is unshakable, Orlin describes it as the solid and immovable truth about you. You are united to Christ. You are united to Christ. You have been so included and brought in and so involved in Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, his current ongoing e eternal life, that scripture says that you have, you are in Christ. It uses two words to describe, kind of sum up who are we as Christians. We are in Christ. And that, that might sound super theoretical or like ethereal, but what what it means is that you've died with him. You've been raised up with him, like we'll see in Romans 6 in a moment. You are so fully and inseparably tied to Christ that nothing could ever separate you from his love. Nothing. Colossians says your life is hidden with Christ. 
like a vault, I picture a vault door. Nothing's going to touch it. You have been so accepted by God that Scripture uses that catch-all term, in Christ. You are in Christ right now. It's in him, in Jesus, that you have redemption through his blood. It's in Jesus that you have forgiveness of sins. It's in him, in Jesus Christ, that you have obtained an eternal inheritance. You haven't accessed that some other way. It's because you are in Jesus that you have all of those things. And in Jesus, when you heard the word of truth and believed, you were sealed by his Holy Spirit. None of that happens apart from him. We received all of those benefits because Jesus has united himself to you and you to him. To be clear, we're not the star of the show. Jesus has united us to himself for what purpose? The praise of his glorious grace. It's for his namesake that he set out to save. We're just the glad recipients of this kind of like tidal wave of grace. But even with that said, Am I right to say that just because we don't want to make ourselves the star of the show or the story about us, that we often find ourselves reflecting on the gospel with like a far-off admiration, like, wow, that sounds, that sounds amazing that Jesus did all that. I'm so undeserving, it's hard to wrap my mind around, but I'll still sing to it. When sometimes we need the word of God and the intentions of Christ to grab us by the shoulders and stir our faith by saying, all the things that you're admiring far off are meant more personally than you could ever imagine. In love, God predestined you in Christ. That was intentional. That was for you personally. Jesus endured the cross in part because there was joy set before him in saving you. It was for you. Jesus' blood is for you. Jesus' body is for you. Jesus' life and death and resurrection are yours. Jesus' desire is for you to be where he is. Jesus is right now preparing a place for you. You belong to Jesus, yes, but he belongs to you too. And he would have it in no other way. And for that church, he gets all the praise, should he not? The goal of God's plan is his own glory. And in his pursuit of his own glory, he saw fit that it would be glorifying to him, the creator of all things, the Lord of heaven and earth, to be joined to us in love through Christ. United to us like what? Like a man and a woman unite in marriage. Like a branch and a vine are united to produce fruit. Like a head is united to the body. Like a building is united and built upon its cornerstone. Church, we individually and as this body are in Christ. And guess what? Even if we've forgotten that that's true, it hasn't changed. No one gets you without Christ and also vice versa. Christ has forever identified himself with you such that there is no version of Jesus that you can't say, he's mine. It leads Paul to say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Paul's obviously still alive, yet he says, it is no longer Paul who's living, but Christ who is living in me. 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Now, I'm, t- I'm tempted for us to just sit on that for a while. Um, but the best we can do is challenge each other to sit on it for the rest of our lives. Uh, that Jesus has bound himself up with you. He is united to you and you to him forever. But this morning, we want to take that reality into baptism. We want to take that into the Lord's Supper so we can receive the maximum delight to know that if we carry into those, those moments the reality that Jesus is ours and we are united with him, then we, we, we can receive the maximum delight that these two things were meant to supply to us as believers. This is not ritual. It's still very much in the context of a living relationship. And Jesus wants us to know the immeasurable riches of God towards us in him in a unique way through these visible displays of the gospel. So back to that big idea, both baptism and the Lord's Supper serve to enhance your understanding of, your love for, and your real-time fellowship with Jesus Christ. Sometimes baptism and the Lord's Supper are called ordinances because they have been specifically like commanded or ordained by Christ for his church to do. We're happy to use that word, but one that has a, a, a bit more to it is sacrament. A sacrament is something sacred and unique that is deeply mysterious, but also deeply meaningful and beneficial for us. In other words, when we baptize, it's not just a nod to Christ's death and resurrection. Just as the Lord's Supper isn't just a memorial or a faint nod to Christ's death in the past. There's much more happening here than that, and we'll, we'll get into that in just a moment. But before, our, our statement of faith just kind of introduces the sacraments as a whole. It says, the sacraments are precious means of grace that signify the benefits of the gospel, confirm its promises to the believer, and visibly distinguish the church from the world. The Lord Jesus instituted two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, for faithful observance by the church until his return. When we, say, when we say means of grace, what we're saying is that we are experiencing God's grace to us in Christ in a spiritually significant way that we wouldn't experience if we were not with witnessing or participating in a baptism or we were not eating the bread and drinking the cup. That still may sound confusing. So here's, here's a statement from J.I. Packer that might help and it has helped me um, he says as the preaching of the word what's what we're doing right now makes the gospel audible to our ears so the sacraments make it visible and what does God do with those God stirs up faith by both means sacraments therefore function as a means of grace on the principle that literally seeing leads to believing in other words it, it, it helps us in believing With the eyes of faith given by the Holy Spirit, we can come to the baptismal waters and say, I know that Chris Pauls are filled this up from the tap this morning. But I see the glory of Jesus' resurrection here in this process. Or we can come to the table and say, this really is just juice and crackers. It really is. Nothing special about them. Nothing magical happens 
with them necessarily. But in taking them, I see and know that Jesus' death is for me and is mine, and, and my faith is stirred because of what we do together. Now, uh, I think I'll share a little bit more of what we do think is happening and we don't, what we don't think is happening in the Lord's Supper. And yet, in and of themselves, these, these things aren't, aren't uh, different than what you might have in your cupboard. And yet, what we're saying is that the biggest difference is, are the eyes of faith. That we, we, we take this knowing that Jesus has specifically attached major meaning to them and has told us to, to go on doing this as a church. Again, the point is that you are in Christ and it's in him that you participate in these things with joy and delight, knowing that we're truly communing with Jesus. We are trusting in him real time. We are better understanding what it means to know him and be secure in his love, how much we've been rescued from and to what degree we've been saved. So first, let's apply, let's apply this to baptism. The statement of faith says, baptism is an initiatory unrepeated sacrament for those who come to faith in Christ that pictures their remission of sins and union with Christ in his death and resurrection. Through immersion in water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the believer publicly proclaims his faith in Christ, and it also signifies his entrance into the body of Christ. Although commanded by Christ, he, he commanded us to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. No one can be, uh, it's, uh, it's commanded by him, and though it's a true means of grace, grace is not so inseparably tied to baptism that no one can be saved without it, or that everyone who is saved or is baptized is thereby saved. I trust that makes sense. We'll get into that in a little bit, but um, I have to admit that so much could be said about baptism. In fact, so much has been written about baptism. Much disagreement has been had over the issue of baptism. Why do some churches baptize babies and others don't? Why do some churches sprinkle and some immerse? How many times do you get baptized? When do you get baptized? Who gets baptized? You could likely come up with a half a dozen questions of your own, and I could come up with as many myself. But based on what I just read on this, in the statement of faith, let me just simplify some of the reasons behind what we do here at Sovereign Grace Church Staten, which we, we think is, is a reflection of what Scripture tells us with the hopes that you and I or one of the pastors, we can talk through any questions you may have. Um, first, we baptize those who have professed their faith in Christ. Uh, the consistent pattern in Acts is that those who, quote, received the word and repented from their sins were baptized. Acts 238, 241, 8-12. People are named, um, some people are named as they are being baptized as those who heard the word, received it, and then were baptized. Um, we also immerse those people who have believed and are baptized. We immerse them in water. The original word for baptized indicated a dipping or a plunging for the purpose of washing. Uh, and if you're looking for examples, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch looked for a larger body of water to be baptized in. Lydia was baptized in a river in Philippi when she heard the gospel from Paul. So those are just two examples of why, why we immerse in water. Taking our cues from Acts in the early church, what was going on there? 
we don't baptize infants. The New Testament lacks any instance of an infant specifically being baptized. When Acts refers to entire households believing and being baptized, we understand this as the, the owners of the household and then the male and female adult servants. That's, their, that's who's encompassed in the household. And that children were not typically included in the title of household at the time. We don't equate baptism with salvation, though the two experiences ought to go together when possible. That's kind of what our statement of faith is saying. Um, if, if baptism equals salvation, everybody should be jumping into this, right, you know, just to make, to make doubly sure. But we're not going to say it's completely removed from it because we, we want to say it's their repentance and baptism are, are tied together in Scripture, particularly in Acts. Uh, when, when these men who are cut to the heart by Peter's preaching say, what, what, what must we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized. They're, 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 it's, it's a reflection and an act of faith. Um, however, baptism does not in and of itself save. The thief on the cross would be a clear example of the reality that Jesus himself was aware that not being baptized wouldn't prevent this man from being with him in paradise. But as a norm, we want to follow Jesus' command to make disciples, to baptize them. It's, it's, it's a part of that process. Um, if, we're believing, if we are baptizing believers who have trusted in Christ and we are immersing them in water, how can that person and the believers who are watching have an enhanced understanding of a love for and a real-time fellowship with Christ? One significant way is by having the words of Romans 6 in mind, which outlined for us a bit of what does this mean? Why are we doing this? Um, and Paul, Paul is describing uh, to the Romans, uh, if, if grace is freely available to those who believe, can't we just keep on going our own way? Can't we just live how we want to live and there's grace for it? There's always going to be forgiveness. And uh, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore. You, this, is, this is part of being in Christ. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died, they can't go on sinning. They've been set free from sin. They cannot live in a pattern of of just going, going on living their own way because we're, we're, we've died with Christ, been raised with Christ. So now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Baptism is a full contact sport where we literally get our bodies involved with mimicking and portraying 
that what truly happened to Jesus bodily has happened to us spiritually. There's a reason why we take someone and we, we lay them down into the water and pull them up. If you were to picture Jesus being taken down from the cross and laid in a tomb and then being raised from the dead and standing up, just overlay that picture with the picture of yourself or, or these people we're, we're going to baptize in a moment of participating in Christ's death. They were laid down in death with him and they've been raised up to life with him. The symbol is so much on purpose. I think Jesus gave us a very vivid image of death in baptism, an image that we're literally meant to feel and see. So for those of you being baptized today, Claire and Steve and Nancy, um, you'll still be Claire and Steve and Nancy after you get baptized, but what's about to happen is, is for you to experience God's grace through Jesus in a intangible way. The good news and the savior of that good news are meant to be as real to you as the water that you have to dry off your body after the fact. It's supposed to stick with you. It's meant to be a significant milestone in following Christ. It's meant to communicate to you that there's, there's no turning back, that your allegiance lies with him. And also, as you guys are, get to participate in, in this, such is the case for every one of us who has trusted in Christ and been baptized. That's what, what the statement of faith is saying. Of it signifies your entrance into the body, into the whole. So speaking of the whole, these baptisms this morning aren't just for Claire and Steve and Nancy. It's for you too. To celebrate the same Savior with whom we also have died and with whom we have also been raised up. It is a means of grace that give us an opportunity for our faith to be stirred. yes. That happened to me. I died with you, Jesus. I was raised with you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And now you have done that with Claire and with Steve and with Nancy and my brothers and sisters in this room. Lord, you are mighty to raise the dead. You are merciful to forgive us and give us eternal life in Christ. You are glorious, Lord. Baptism is a wide open door for us to worship Christ together. We're not at a play or a movie and we're just like observing what's up front. We get to be in on this. And it's of spiritual significance to all of us as we're identifying with the risen Christ himself. Though we only baptize once, to think that even in the last few months we've seen multiple people be baptized. We've, we've watched what it's like for our life lived in our passions and sins to have ended and to have been raised to newness of life in Christ. What a gift from Jesus baptism is. That he thought of such a vivid picture for us to participate in, to watch, and to prepare to celebrate what the Lord has done in three people. So friends, remember, you, you are in Christ, the risen Christ. Let these baptisms press into your heart the truth that you really are raised with him. With the eyes of faith, be convinced that you really are washed clean, purified from all your guilt, and that the life you get to have now is new life, eternal life. So with that, um, I'm going to invite Steve and Nancy and Claire to come stand over here.
And uh, we want to hear from them and to rejoice with them and to participate in this together. In church, I pray that we're able to join in in faith, saying this is about these three who share a common Savior with us. And we celebrate with them. Um, do you want to fast, fast, try to fast forward a little bit through some, some of the Lord's Supper, but not, not for the sake of uh, glossing over anything. So, um, but this is, this is another thing that Jesus himself has given us to do as a church with regularity for the sake of, of fellowshipping with him, knowing him further, and also being reminded of the gospel. Um, just read this section of the statement of faith. In the Lord's Supper, the gathered church eats bread, signifying Christ's body given for his people, and drinks the cup of the Lord, signifying his blood shed for our sins. So as we observe this sacrament with faith and sober, sober self-examination, we remember and proclaim the death of Christ. We commune with him and receive spiritual nourishment for our souls. We signify our unity with other members of Christ's body, and we look forward to the Lord's triumphant return. So you may have heard this called several different names. Um, it's called communion because uh, we are participating in Christ's, we're showing that we, we are participating in Christ's death and his, and, and his sacrifice um, per 1 Corinthians 10, 16. It, it has also been called the Eucharist, which is uh, the original word kind of reflected in that word is, is thanksgiving because Jesus gave thanks and he broke the bread. He gave thanks and he, he passed the cup. We, we call it, those are, I mean, we, those are helpful terms. They're all highlighting different things. We call it the Lord's Supper because in 1 Corinthians 11.20, Paul says, when you come together, is it not the Lord's Supper that you eat? Uh, this, is, this is his. He's the one who's given this to us to, to do. But just like baptism, so much could be said about the Lord's Supper, and so much has been written. In fact, um, uh, the Lord's Supper is probably is arguably one of the most most debated things in church history. Um, it seems like there are few things more consistently written about and debated in church history. Uh, how often? Who's involved? Wine or juice? Loaf or wafer? wafer prepackaged or separate? What exactly is happening while we're taking the Lord's Supper? Why not kids? What does it mean to eat and drink in an unworthy manner? Again, there's no way we can answer all those questions this morning. Um, I've had so many of those questions myself, and that's, that's part of the reason why there's a, a, a little, albeit mediocre, pamphlet in the hallway on the Lord's Supper, because I have wrestled and continue to wrestle with some of those very questions, and yet have the Lord, the Lord has been kind to show how uh, tremendously sweet this supper can be for us who believe in Christ. Um, we celebrate the Lord's Supper weekly because the, the language and acts of breaking of bread is something that we feel we, we need to be doing um, regularly. And, and we want to experience this means of grace. Why, why uh, necessarily hold off for a few months before we can get to it again? Um, like baptism, the Lord's Supper is for believers um, Jesus called us to take this supper in remembrance of him, which is not simply re recollecting something he did in history, but it's partaking in faith, remembering Jesus' sacrifice for us. Um, I shared this about almost a year ago. We were in the Last Supper in Luke, and 
um, I highlighted the fact that uh, this is a mixture of sobriety and gladness when we take the Lord's Supper. Uh, like the song says, his blood was the payment, his life was the cost for our sins. So sobriety is in order. This isn't to be taken like lackadaisically as, as a subpar snack. Equally true, though, is the reality that there has been a sacrifice. There has been payment. There is a wedding feast that this gives us a taste of, so we rejoice and celebrate. We don't take the Lord's Supper alone. This might, be, it might sound like a strange thing, uh, but part of the benefit and the way in which the Lord's, Lord's Supper stirs our faith is by realizing that we have the same Savior. We're remembering him together. Um, perhaps one of the biggest points is that we do not believe that we're eating the physical body and drinking the physical blood of Jesus. Jesus, as a resurrected man and still fully God, is seated in one place in heaven. These wafers aren't pieces of his body, but the traditional Reformed view is that Jesus is really and truly present in this meal, communing with us, not physically, per se, but he is with us in this. And perhaps our greatest need in these moments is the need for faith. Um, I'm going to summarize John 6. In John 6, Jesus has just fed the, the 5,000. So he made bread and fish multiply, and they ate over 5,000 people. Then people are following him, and he's saying, you're not following me because I'm the son of God, or be, even because of the miracle, but because you ate and were filled. Um, so then he goes into explaining, he kind of takes them on a, a bit of a history lesson and says, in the days of Moses, God sent down bread called manna, and it provided life-sustaining nourishment for his people. But then Jesus compares himself with that bread and says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's saying, that, that bread was sent from heaven, but it's, it's a picture of me being sent from heaven for you as bread that will satisfy you. Okay, that makes sense enough. But then he goes on to say that in order to have this bread, in order to have the nourishment and to enjoy it, you have to take the bread which is given for the life of the world, which is what? He says, it's my flesh. So is he saying we need to eat his flesh like bread somehow? That's exactly what the Jews asked him. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's for this saying that a lot of disciples say, this is, this is too hard for me. I'm, I'm out. Because he's saying, eat my flesh, drink my blood. That's how you have eternal life. So what's the deal? What's, what, what exactly is he saying? Uh, is he saying all we have to do is take the Lord's Supper and we're saved? Just, just like the confusion with baptism. Then anyone who does that is good, right? I think that's a major misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying here. And for some of you who have grown in the Catholic Church, I think this is a, a passage of Scripture that they misstep on in terms of He's not saying literally eat my flesh and drink my blood. 
But what he's actually saying, and I hope that will inform when we take this supper in a moment, is that eating and drinking, the eating and drinking that Jesus is talking about, simply put, is believing. All you have to do is believe, and eternal life is yours. But believing might be a little bit more intense of an act than you might have thought at first. It is so involved and so real and so necessary that he compares it with eating and drinking his own blood and body. So let's apply that specifically to the supper. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul's correcting the Corinthians for butchering the intentions of the Lord's Supper, and he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? If, if Christ's body and blood was, was just his and not offered for us, it means nothing for us. But because it was offered for us, we say, I believe that that was for me and I am participating in his death. So uh, it's not mere eating and drinking. This is participation in, in, in his sacrifice, in his offering of his life for, for ours. Um, that act of faith is likened to eating and drinking. And that doesn't, but that, that did happen when you first trusted in Christ, but it doesn't stop happening, particularly so when we're eating and drinking during the Lord's Supper. As we eat and drink and participate, our faith is stirred. And suffice it to say, friend, if you have not taken Jesus, the bread of life, and received him as the only way to be truly satisfied and saved and the only way to have a guaranteed future of a life spared from the penalty of your sin, and he is calling you to come and believe right now, to go all in on trusting him from this day forward. It can never be a half-hearted thing. It's like eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Um, something I have to, have to be careful of when we say that, that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace is that there's not grace inside of these. Like, if that were the case, we should be carrying the elements of the Lord's Supper with us and just eating it all day long. Uh, but that's not true. But there is a reality that Jesus, even right now as we take it, is calling us to receive him in faith, just as you did when your eyes were first opened to the worth and glory of Christ. That's why we continue to say, if you don't believe in Jesus, the Lord's Supper is meaningless to you. But to those who do believe in Jesus and come to the table in faith saying, I believe that Jesus is really here to be enjoyed and to nourish my soul, he'll give you grace as you do so. By his spirit. So like baptism, let's participate in the Lord's Supper in a full contact way. You are chewing and swallowing because the Lord Jesus had a tremendous idea that your faith in an unseen Savior would be helped when you get your senses involved so that you can zero in on what his sacrifice means. At the beginning of this, the sermon, we talked about the immovable truth that you are in Christ. So when we take the supper, that's what takes us from being a nod to Jesus to being something more. I'm bound up with him. I am one with him. I participated in his death. I am his. He is mine. I'm forgiven with him. We are forgiven with him. We are brought face to face with the wonder of his grace and mercy towards us each time we take the Lord's Supper. And by the Spirit giving us eyes to see that this, this is bread and this is juice. 
Oh, but it's not simply this when we consider the realities of salvation and that Jesus is communing here with us right now. So, um, if you're a follower of Christ who's believed in him, imperfect as you are, you're invited to come and take the bread and the cup, which bring us right up close to Jesus' body and blood so that we can experience once again the joy that our sins are forgiven. If you've not trusted in Jesus and known what it means to be forgiven, we, we just ask that you remain seated. But nonetheless, that you will hear the call from Jesus, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. So friend, if you have not taken Jesus, the bread of life, and received him, then we invite you to go all in on trusting him from this day forward. That offer is wide open to you this morning, even without taking the Lord's Supper. Um, I'll, I'll just take a brief moment. I know we're, we're lingering a bit longer because of the excitement of lots of things happening this morning. But um, church, would you come take these to your seats and, and we'll take them together in just a moment. As we sit to take this together, as folks are still moving about, um, part of the reason why I want to emphasize that you are in Christ, that means that um, something that happened, particularly Christ's death, but also his life, things that happened so long ago, that is how there for you right here, right now. That is how we can, with the eyes of faith, by the Spirit, say, yes, I thank God that Jesus was given over me, that he gave me his body and his blood, and not just that moment, but that he said, hey, when you take it, do this in remembrance of me so that your faith is stirred and upheld and that you can know this is working towards something. We are we're gonna do this until he returns and, and I, want, I want to be participating in that until he comes. Um, so this isn't, we're not just thinking about Jesus over there. We're thinking about how Jesus has been brought to us, how we've been included with him in his death and his resurrection. Um, when Jesus, on the very night he was betrayed, he broke bread and he give, gave thanks. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let's eat together. As a reminder, these are glass. Please put them in the chair in front of you when you're finished. Um, but Jesus, Jesus also took a cup of stuff that looks a whole lot like blood. And he said, this is my, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So let's drink together. We thank God for, at Christmas, he sent Jesus as a child and that same body as a child that grew to mature manhood is what is, is the sacrifice given for us. I just wanted to take a minute to bring all of this around before we sing together. As, as there, like I was saying, there's so much written on the Lord's Supper and baptism. It was just like book on book on book on book and like so much said, so much to try to intake. Uh, one thing that st stuck out to me that I wanted, to, wanted us to kind of carry the torch on is that 
even in the first couple hundred years after the time of the apostles, the church, the church fathers were saying, this is, this is what the baptism and the Lord's Supper are about because there are some bad ideas about it. And I was wondering to myself, how do we make sure that we as a church celebrate these things in all their fullness and what, what might try to knock us off our rocker as far as holding to the truth? And the first that we get to do together is to emphasize the spiritual realities of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We are in a world that says only what I see is what is true. And here we are on a Sunday saying Jesus is really present here while we're taking the Lord's Supper. How? Like that seems so outlandish. And that's not just something that we want to like, that sounds really cool, so let's make sure we keep to that. We think that that's, our, our Lord is risen. He is real. We are communing with him, participating with him. So let's keep doing that. Let's keep making sure that, that baptism is not just about the water. It's not just about the act. It is about what was done for us and also how we how kind of, our statement of faith said that it's an initiatory thing. It's, 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 at, the begi- it's at the beginning of our faith. It is what shows that we are a part of God's people. So that's one. Another, uh, let's make new disciples and baptize them. That sounds so simple, but that's one of the ways that we defend and make sure that this is so important to us. I was, I was, had this in the back of my mind in a conversation with a neighbor on Friday night with, who was asking lots of questions about the Bible, asking lots of questions about God. And it occurred to me, what, and, and lots of open doors to share the good news with this person who presumably has not heard it before. What would it mean for that person to then come into this church and be on the steps of this baptismal, ready to show that they, they have been rescued by Christ. They belong to him. Think of those people that you know and picture them right here and let that be motivation for us and a desire to say, I, I want you brought in. I want you in the people of God. I want you to know Jesus and be forgiven, to be washed of your sins. And I, find, I find that that, even just that little exercise of like, so-and-so, my, my, my kids, my parents, my, my uh, coworker and neighbor, my aunt who, who, who hates God. Picture them stepping into that baptismal and wondering, could that be, is that possible? And I think the people in this room who were just baptized or who are related to them would say, yes, it's possible. And we want that to happen. So that's Lord's Supper, we can do that every Sunday. Baptism has one condition, that those who believe in him would be baptized. How do they believe? They hear, we proclaim, they believe. Last thing is, let's, let's work hard to see ourselves as a part of the whole. This is basically a, a repeat of something I shared last year at, with the sermon on the Last Supper. We, again, live in a world that's me, myself, and I is the priority and all by myself. 
versus seeing yourself and saying, I belong to this body, this group of people that Jesus has rescued by his blood. He is a people he has saved to dwell with, to be zealous for good works. Um, uh, Not only do I need them, I am glad to be taking this with all of you. I'm glad that, uh, that Claire and Steve and Nancy have a family to be a part of now. And then they're not just kind of left on their own from then on. So let's, let's work hard to do that. Um, just just a, few, a few notes for us to apply. And speaking of um, together, uh, just share one verse with you. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. And we all partake of that one bread. We participate in his death and his resurrection. And we get to experience that together. And, and that's not cheap. That is um, what Christ designed for us. That's what he desires for us.